Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land and I'm Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I'm so pleased to be here on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. For those of you listening live right now, for those of you listening in the future, we have another day to get it right. And as we welcome our forum back and we are able to come together. I want today's show to focus on what's happening on the U.S. Supreme Court, what's happening with midterm elections coming up. How are you doing? How are you faring in this new season? We are into fall. The holiday season is going to be starting soon and all of us are still trying to think about the trauma, drama, and the survival that we all had to encounter these feelings of being human, being mortal, and understanding that every day is precious as we eke our way through this pandemic that's still in um, our lives. They say over 500, 500 people a day are dying of COVID or COVID complications, even complications from the COVID vaccinations themselves. And yet we're here, able to think, able to listen, able to do, able to be active. And that makes us activists when we're given a situation and we choose to act. We can decide when and where we enter into the fray. We can sit on the sidelines and be discerning as to how we'll use our time, money, and energy, but I hope we don't sit still too long and think that maybe another time, maybe when things are better, there will always be controversies. The sun will shine, the birds will sing, children will laugh, and there will always be people trying to oppress somebody else. It's the nature of man, nature of people, too often the nature of women too. So here's something going on in our U.S. Supreme Court. We have our Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who's starting off with a fervor, and she's got fire. If you have a chance, you can listen to the U.S. Supreme Court um, oral arguments. And the U.S. Supreme Court begins the first week of October. Oral arguments begin the new term. So this will be considered the 2022 term. Oral arguments go until the end of April. And throughout this term, until it ends in June, there will be decisions. But normally the decisions take place, the more controversial ones, in the latter part of the term. But we have oral arguments this time coming into this that are dealing with issues of criminal justice, the death penalty, for example, the Child Welfare Act with Native American adoptions and affirmative action, and so many more, the Environmental Protection Agency and, and others. I want us to circle over to affirmative action. I want us to think about how we are in what is called the um, final stages of affirmative action. Um, that's what's feared. The case was going to be heard on Halloween, 
That doesn't help, does it? So October 31st, Halloween morning, 10 a.m., the U.S. Supreme Court will hear two cases on affirmative action. One, students for fair admissions versus University of North Carolina. The second, students for fair admissions versus president and fellows of Harvard. Now, let's break down what affirmative action is in the first place. And to do that, we need to go back into American history. We know that before the 29 Africans arrived in 1619, there were Africans in North America. But we also know that in August of, 20, of, of 2019, we celebrated the 400th commemoration of the arrival of 20 and odd Africans in August of 1619. Those 20 and odd Africans arrived here from Angola, Africa, taken, kidnapped. I don't like the word stolen. We steal property. We kidnap people. And they were kidnapped from their homelands in order to serve under an edict based on religion and greed. Surprise, surprise, those two sometimes go together. And the Pope in the 1400s had decided, Pope Nicholas V, that anyone who wasn't a Christian could be subjugated into service. And so Europeans in what was called the old world went into the new world, subjugating Native Americans, subjugating um, indigenous people in the Caribbean islands, subjugating Africans and putting them into the service of the expansion of the new world, which was called North and South America. By the old world for riches, gains, political power, et cetera, and so from that time forward, there's been this battle. And we need to understand this battle because law in the House of Burgesses that was created in July of 1619. Now remember, one month before the Africans arrive in Virginia, into the Virginia colony, the Jamestown settlement, that was the land of the Powhatan Native Americans who had their own structure, they had their own government they actually had women in high levels of government in the 1600s. So these Europeans arrive onto the Powhatan um, native lands that we now call Virginia. And then Europeans kidnap Africans. They are brought to this land because the English um, sailing ship that was the slave ship at the time had encountered in a war to capture, take over the, the human beings that were in the other ship, they had this battle on the high seas. The English privateer ship takes the human beings, the Africans from one ship, and then takes those Africans and says, oh, we have to find some place because our ship has been harmed. We need food. We need provisions. The closest English settlement is the Jamestown settlement. I want us to understand all this as we go into Thanksgiving, that this was all taking place in 16... 19. Those Africans then arrive in August of 1619, the month before those Europeans from England, Scotland, Ireland, and the, only the landed ones, of course, could be those in charge of government, had created the House of Burgesses and decided that they needed more labor. So they must have seen like, oh my goodness, God has given us these people, but now these people are being under law, oppression, that they are now being subjugated into labor for the European. 
from this point forward, <clears throat> excuse me, there's been this push back and forth, the resistance, standing up to tyranny, standing up to the diabolical nature of murder, of rape, of stealing the native lands, kidnapping people to work those lands. All of this has been taking place. And then to continue the subjugation for hundreds of years. So what we have now is this idea that President Johnson in 1965 said we have to have some affirmative action to right the wrong, some affirmative action. Now, there had been this fight, as we said, this entire time where African people and African-Americans fighting in the Civil War, fighting in every war, where we had people of African descent demanding their rights under the U.S. Constitution. All of this has been taking place, and yet we've had waves of European immigrants come in attacking in race wars against people of African descent. All of this has been battling going on two steps forward as we build, as is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Black Wall Street, only to have in, in 1921 waves, thousands of whites come in and destroy acres and acres of black businesses. This has been replicated time and time again. This idea of affirmative action was one to try to repair the damage that was done before, put people of, of, of you know, the Europeans, put people of African descent, put people of native Indus, uh, um, um, heritage, of the, the native Eskimo, Latinos, uh, women, yes, women, in positions where they had been denied it intentionally for so long. That affirmative action was based on an executive order by President Johnson 11246, executive order 11246. Using the 14th Amendment, Africans and other people of color in America had fought hard through the courts to try to retain the rights to voting, to education, to housing. All these things had been going on at the same time as these uh, horrific, um, oppressive nature of law and tradition in society has undermined or had continued to undermine that progress. So that was in 1965, the same year as the Voting Rights Act. And in 1964, we had the, the Civil Rights Act, which included um, private measures to stop private discrimination in businesses to protect the rights of people of color, people of other nationalities and women, and based on gender as well as um, national origin. All these things were being put in place in the 1960s. We want to understand and set the stage for this. The 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, were essential to the, the ability of people of color and other people who have been oppressed to get a foothold into the economy, a foothold into American society. Things were moving and there was compelling government interest to right the wrongs of the past. And then we had the Bakke decision in 1978. And Alan Bakke, a white man, sued the University of Davis, um, University of California Davis Medical School because they had a system that set aside certain seats for people of color and women. And Alan Bakke was not your traditional medical student applicant. He was older in his 30s, and he did not score brilliantly on these exams, but he said, well, I've scored better than these people of color and these women. Why are you setting aside seats? This violates my 
equal protection rights, my 14th Amendment rights. And so the Supreme Court said, well, you're right. We're not going to allow quotas to set aside. We have to have competition. Now, remember, for hundreds of years, the competition was undermined for, for people of color. For, for Asians, for African-Americans, for Latinos, for indigenous people, for women undermined by white men. And now this white man says, no, this undermines my right to compete. So we have to change the whole ball game except for one thing. They said we could allow race to be taken into account as one element in a list of elements of criteria yet the schools could take into account. At the same time, there was affirmative action in employment. There was affirmative action in government contracts, especially federal government contracts. This idea that this country had done wrong and needed to right that wrong. But as these these cases opposing affirmative action took hold, we had something called reverse discrimination. So this reverse discrimination now becomes the idea of the conservatives that we cannot undermine the rights of innocent whites who had nothing to do with what had taken place before. So there was this, this necessary connection that there had to be a connection between the wrongs that had taken place. The, the University of California Davis um, specifically wrong uh, people of color, and therefore they're making right or repairing these actions through an affirmative action program in their school. And if there's nothing that indicates that the company, corporations or whatever that switch hands, of course, so many times between the time period of enslavement and Jim Crow, if there's nothing that indicates a direct connection between the diabolical nature of discrimination that had taken place before and the right they want to correct today, which is to allow people to come in, giving them extra points or giving um, race um, um, a, a part of the admissions process to take into account that racial discrimination has made it more difficult for people of color and women to compete. Race could be taken into account as one element. And so after that, the gates were open for reverse discrimination cases in employment as well as in education. And reverse discrimination cases in education are the ones that lay the foundation for what we're talking about today. And we had conservative groups say, well, these um, affirmative action programs are undermining the competitive rights of Asians to be a part of the um, educational systems because these Asian applicants have better scores, better test scores. And so therefore, these African, Latino, women, and others who are getting in are taking the place of Asians. Asian American groups, I have to say, are part of, this is at Harvard, and I've seen the actual amicus brief, and amicus means friend of the court brief, that Asian American groups are saying, don't use us, white people, conservatives, don't use us in the divide and conquer scheme to try to stop affirmative action. And Asian American groups have actually stood up and said, Asian Americans and African Americans want to work together to solve this problem. We don't need this outside divisive influence of white conservatives, but they found enough Asian American um, plaintiffs to be a part of this lawsuit. Students for Fair Admissions is what they call themselves. And you know, these cases now take on these names. 
2003-2016 major affirmative action cases, Gretz and Gruder. These are cases that were brought against the University of Michigan. And so University of Michigan brought the case of 2003, one against the college admissions process itself. They used affirmative action policy and another against the law school. In the Gruder case against the law school, race was one element. That was the 2003 case. In the Gratz case, there was more of a set aside. The, uni the University of Michigan's college admission set aside program that set aside certain seats was found to be unconstitutional, but the Supreme Court found it constitutional to use race as one element. Then we had the Fisher case in 2016, and in Fisher versus Texas, Abigail Fisher in University at the Texas applicant said race, even as one element, denied her her equal protection and denied her the entry into the University of Texas program. Here's how that affirmative action program worked at University of Texas. The top 10% of students across the board, across the board in any high school in Texas, if a student was in the top 10% of their high school, they could attend University of Texas. Top 10% of the high school whatever high school, that was the fair ground. And the second tier of that was if you weren't in the top 10 of the high school class, graduating high school class in, you know, in Texas, state of Texas, you know how big Texas is. Then the second tier was you could apply using the second tier where race is one element. They also looked at whether or not um, English was spoken as a first language, whether or not it was a school district that had a high free lunch program, um, whether or not, and that's therefore a high economic um, poverty program, um, whether or not um, there was a one or two parent household. They took all of these things into consideration. If there was an immigrant family, all these things and race was one of those elements. That case goes to the Supreme Court, barely ekes by. Once again, Supreme Court says we can use race as one element. So the two cases before the court that are going to be heard in oral arguments on the 31st, Halloween, the Harvard case and the University of North Carolina case, once again, race is only one element among many. Ten elements, one is race. And they're saying race is the reason why this affirmative action program should fail that they should remove race altogether. It's no longer about repairing the past. That ended over a generation ago. This issue of diversity then becomes, you know, the major calling card. But my argument is this. Diversity was initially supported by the Supreme Court because it was thought these white students needed to be in a diverse educational environment because they were going to be the future leaders of the country and they needed to be able to have influence and be able to see other people. And that was going to help them be better leaders, better national world or local leaders, meaning that the people of color and the women in the class were just there to be helpful to the white male who was going to rise to the top. Diversity has been controversial in my eyes. Diversity means a number of different things. If people check a particular box and that makes it more diverse in that particular class. But what diversity is, is always been something of a misnomer because it's also about power. Remember, we had diversity in 1619. We had diversity when we had Native Americans. Europeans, 
and Africans in Virginia, we had diversity, but we didn't have power in equity. So we have to look at diversity from many different standpoints. But I want to also have you know that Clarence Thomas, who is now the most conservative justice on the U.S. Supreme Court and the only black male in the court who has said he was a beneficiary of affirmative action, has denounced it so many times. In one of his dissents, especially in the Fisher case, he has equated affirmative action with slavery, even though he has benefited from affirmative action, but he has now denounced it. And he would probably be the one writing the affirmative the decision that would um, overturn every element of affirmative action if it's up to him. Let's take a musical break, but I want to do this. And I want to do this with the idea that when we come back, we can hear from you. 212-209-2877. We want to hear from you. 212-209-2877. When we return, because to be young, gifted, and Black is an amazing thing. To be young, gifted, and Black. Coming from a very proud African-American, I say to be young, gifted, and Black should be supported. And as one element race and a multi-element criteria for admissions into a college, after everything we've done in this country and everything that's been done in this country, it should be something we support as a nation. We'll be right back, 212-209-2877. Let me hear from you. Morning. Quite recently, there was an article in the New York Times on Lorraine Hansberry and a play downtown off Broadway called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, produced by her. And um, there was a picture of her there. And it was a picture that I have seen many times before. But photography, as you know, has its own way of communicating, just its own mediums do. And all I can tell you is that th this picture caught hold of me. And in her eyes, this will sound very strange, but not to people who are really hip. Um, she kept trying to tell me something. I was sitting, sitting on the bed. And I, I remember distinctly saying, I would keep looking at the picture and keep looking at the picture. And, and the, of course, the memory of being with her many times kept coming, flooding back in my memory. But I said, and I remember, inspiration is a very strange thing. Sometimes it just happens like a light. And I remember getting, uh, a feeling in, in my body. And I said, that's it. To be young, gifted, and black, that's all. And sat down at the piano at that moment and made up a tune. It, and it just flowed out of me. I knew what I wanted it to say in essence, but I couldn't get the words together. So I called up my musical director and told him what was on my mind, explained to him a little bit about Lorraine Hansberry because he didn't know her. And he captured the mood, and the song was born less than two days later. And um, that's been less than a month ago. So I really think that she gave it to me. That's what I mean when I say that. To 
To be young, gifted, and black, and that was the Nina Simone telling you how she came to write that song. 
thinking about Lorraine Hansberry, of course, who wrote the great play, Racing in the Sun. To be young, gifted, and black, and I'm going to add to be young in spirit, gifted and black, because you could be of any age. I have been talking about affirmative action for many, many years, and I know we have midterm elections. We have so many things going on right now, but I did want to explain it, and people who want to talk about affirmative action or talk about other legal cases or other political issues taking place, now is the time to give me a call, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. And we'll take our first caller. You're on the air. This is Law of the Land. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. So I want to talk about, you know, a situation that happened with my daughter. Um, we live in New York. It's very hard to get into a really quote-unquote good high school um, with the specialized tests sort of skewed against people of color. Um, I did, we did manage to get her into a sort of like a 90% Asian high school, which we thought was a great choice um, because she could learn Mandarin, um, only to discover that, that the school administrators were not keen on having people of color integrate into their school system. So when it came time for colleges, um, she asked a couple of her teachers to write recommendation letters, um, and she thought they were writing great recommendation letters. When she didn't get into some of her high schools, we had we knew someone that said that knew someone that sat on an admissions board at a college, and they finally told us that the recommendation letters were not great for her. And, you know, had we not known that we were wondering why she didn't get into some of these colleges, only to find out that that's another area. Like if you can't read these recommendation letters or you don't know, um, you know, that's sort of fighting against you, you know? Yes, that's so true. And so she was going from high school to college and not getting into certain colleges? She was not. Yet. We fought for her to get into this high school that we thought was, was going to be great for her because she learned Mandarin and all of this other stuff. But she couldn't get it. She didn't get into a uh, – it was hard for her to get into college. And she thought it was something wrong with her. And when we finally – someone told us because her number one school she reapplied and they told her the reason why she didn't get in was mm. the recommendation letters from the college which i'm thinking no recommendation letters from, from the no you're from it, the you're school, saying from the high school from the high school yeah that's what's confusing okay and and so um one of one of the things i have to say this happens on jobs as well because it happened to me on one of my jobs where you had people writing mediocre letters. And when they're writing these mediocre letters, we don't know because most people check the box saying, I don't want to review my letter, you know? And so the letters then go out without review. And yes, and that's an, a way that not only will it, people at high schools and jobs undermine your progress going forward, but in many ways, that's the way to maintain 
um, control over who actually is getting into these positions because they'll write these great letters for the people they believe should be getting the jobs or they'll, they believe should be getting into particular um, colleges, um, but not um, other people. So I would, now that you know this, I would really, I mean, there's a whole phrase, put them on blast. I really would say something to your high school. Well, I mean, I, and and I thought the same thing. And and um, I mean, you know, she's she's about to graduate from college. We do like the college that she's going to, but okay. you know, I, but at the same time, you know, I said that something should be said because you know you're you're thinking that you're doing all the right things, and mm -hmm. I don't even know if they that would grant her the opportunity to read the letter. I mean, the teacher the teachers assured her. And the funny thing is that one of her friends that got into Yale said that the teacher let him read the letter. And I said, that's interesting. You didn't get to read your letter. She's like, no, it wasn't even offered. They went to different schools, high schools. But it's funny that some people, they'll just show them the letter, you know, like, this is my letter I'm sending you. Do you want me to add anything? And her school, it was like it was kept, you know, a closed you know, closed up to her. She didn't know what they said out. I yeah, I just really you know, I'm glad that other people have a chance to hear this so that they know you can't just trust these administrators no. to write proper letters. And so thank you for letting this gives a heads up to a lot of parents and people should spread the word and for jobs as well. You know, tell them that you want to see the letter that's going out. I mean, check the box. I know it looks like, oh, you're not supposed to do that, but you don't want to be in this situation. You don't want any other parents. You don't want any person who's applying for another job to be in this particular situation. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So we're learning, you know, we're trying to do the best we can. Um, we're going to take another caller and, you know, for our young people, for ourselves. And as we, we talked about this before, where we're being undermined so many different ways. And yet at the same time, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm having to look at affirmative action in the small parts that it did for people of color when it did so much more for white women. White women were the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action. Um, you're on the line. This is Law of the Land. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. This is Mercedes from Brooklyn. How are you doing? You're an answer to prayer. I kept praying, and I'm one of your buddies. Praying. Oh, you thank you. Back. And now that you're back, I'm going to increase my contribution because you are an oasis for our people. So thank you very much. A lot of us have been wondering what happened. What happened? This woman gives us such great information that we can use. So I pray that your your bosses, Miss Perry and everyone else, are listening and make sure that at least once a week you're back with us. You are our university. Thank you very much, and I'll increase my contributions as well as my friends will do so too now. Thank you. Thank you. I, I can, I truly appreciate that. I really do. Did you have a question as well? So we are going to our next listener. That's a, that's great. That, that's really does. Thank you so much. That makes me feel fantastic. 
So um, do we have another listener? Mr. Call? Yes. Hello? Yes. Hello. Good morning. You're on Law of the Land. I'm feeling so good. What do you have to, what's, what's going on? Tell us about what's well, happening. Um, I basically just have a question of a, the argument of affirmative action. And I feel like affirmative action is like a, a bone from reparations. And it should be argued in the Supreme Court that you owe us reparations and affirmative action is just the, the, the appetizer for reparations and it shouldn't be changed. Or if you are going to change it, you should give us back our reparations because there's billions of dollars owed us. And this is a cheap way of slowly paying us back. So I think the argument of affirmative action should be looked at as a form more so of a reparation rather than you're giving us a plus, you know? Everyone else I, I, I agree. in this country. I, I, I agree. I don't think it should be an either or. I've never looked at that. That's what really bothers me about diversity. Um, but once they said, well, we cannot um, connect the repair that needs to be done to the injury. And that's what the court said. Unless you can connect the repair to the injury, then you're not repairing. You're just taking from people now. And so when they change the legal argument to diversity, I think that means, but I'm not saying it should be either or, but you're right. I think it is an appetizer, but I also think that it is something that um, when they, when they've looked at, I just, this is, I'm going to say very quickly, the analysis that was done by one of the Harvard student groups was that if they took away race as one of the elements, it will once again benefit white men more than it would ever benefit Asians. So Asian applicants. So once again, white men will be the beneficiary of it. And why are they attacking the race issue? Why not attack the poverty issue? Why not attack, you know, the neighborhood issue? Why not attack this? You know what? Here's the other thing, because they give points if a person and depends on the admissions policy of that particular school. But they give admissions, not points, but they they look at they'll focus on whether or not that applicant, that that child who's applying for college comes from a single parent household. But you don't see people saying, why, just because I'm married and I have a partner, does that mean I'm being penalized when you're not going to uh, let my child in because they have a mother and father who are married and this person comes from a single parent household? They're Like you said, they're just taking race out as they feel it's low hanging fruit and they want to blame everything on the race issue. Yeah. And, and what about all the other people? I mean, is it fair that veterans get job preferences? It's or legacies. Are you familiar with the, the legacy phrase too? It said so for Harvard, for many of these schools, if someone in the family attended that school, then a child or or a relative of that family is called a legacy. They get extra points when they apply to a school based on being a legacy. And things like that are not argued, but race is always an issue. Yet we're old. It <laughs> that's what kills me. I mean, well, I would love to be on one of those uh, debate teams. But, uh, well, but what I would like you to do, remember this argument is going to be on October 31st, and it's going to be recorded so you can actually listen to the oral argument yourself. You can go to the U.S. Supreme Court website, just put in the, the you know, U.S. Supreme Court, just Google that or whatever search engine you use, and you can go to the U.S. Supreme Court website. And on the website, you will find 
the um, link to the oral arguments and listen to the oral arguments, listen to what they argue. Okay, that sounds good. That, that sounds very interesting because I would love to see these arguments and how do they argue it. Okay, then. Thank you. This is great. I told everybody, I always tell everybody I have the smartest listeners. So you're on Law of the Land, and we have another listener on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and I am she. Good morning. Good morning. Am I on? How are, yes, you're on. How are you doing? Well, fine, thank you. Uh, wonderful explanation of the history of affirmative action. But the thing I think everyone should remember that every act of racism that is going on today is affirmative action for white people. And until the nation decides to end racism, then we know that the nation is intent on continuing affirmative action for white people. And therefore, our only answer must be to do it ourselves to develop schools, to have and fight for community control of the schools, to fight against charter schools so that we have in our own power the money, the jobs, the contracts to develop a society. And we must remember every black society that has been developed has been destroyed by whites with guns. We have to remember what the history really tells us. So thank you for raising this wonderful subject, for bringing in issues. And we always must remember whose responsibility was it to allow Clarence Thomas to become a Supreme Court justice. And we look at Mr. Biden, Mr. Kennedy, who knew far more than they told the public that they knew reasons why he should never have been chosen as a Supreme Court justice. We should look at the ministers, the black ministers who were paid to support his bid to become a Supreme Court justice. Talking about uh, he's another Thurgood Marshall, but he needs Thurgood Marshall space. We must remember that history that you presented to us this morning. And then when we remember that history and what it means, then... And only then can we develop the answers. Thanks for, for the time. Continue your good work. Talk about history, but tell people they must interpret what that means for us. Thank you again. This is Ralph Pointer from What's Happening, another program on WBAI. Thank you. Thank you. And I will, like, I, I look at this and I say, yes, let's build our communities. Um, and for those of us who want from this nation what we believe we should have, we should do that at the same time. Um, I, I, I'm going to raise a book, um, When Affirmative Action Was White. That's the title of the book, When Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katz Nelson. When Affirmative Action Was White. And when you read this book, you'll find that 
affirmative action for white people, as was pointed out in day-to-day life with all the little goodie bags that are given out and extra privileges, but also the GI Bill was this major affirmative action for white people that was not allowed for people of color to access, access at the same level. Affirmative action for white people was the GI Bill, where people could go to school, colleges for free. How many people graduated from Columbia, NYU, all these colleges around here for free. Ask your grandparents when you're talking about, you know, um, buying a house, they did not have to put down a down payment. They could buy a house without a down payment based on the GI Bill. And I know there are African-American soldiers, my father-in-law, my late father-in-law being one of them, and so many other Black soldiers, uh, male and female service people who were denied their GI Bill rights. And just think about the wealth that could have been attained if they would have been able to get those houses, get that education back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, if you have anybody in your family who still is alive and they served in the military and they have not gotten their GI Bill rights, please, please, please get that. You can get a house in New York City without a down payment based on the GI Bill. So. Please see if they are still available to get those homes. And if even if they can only live with them a short time, but they're able under their names to get a house, an apartment without a down payment in this country because they served in the military. And I believe it's up until the Iraq war, but I know it's World War One. I mean, World War II, I should say, I'm sorry. World War II, the Vietnam War, and I believe it's up until the Iraq War. We have time for another caller. This is Law of the Land, and I'm just so excited. When we have so many calls standing by, we're going to go on speed call now. So now we're not going to be able to give us much time, but I want you to be able to say what you have to say. But remember, say it quickly, quickly, because we've got six callers waiting. Okay, you're on Law of the Land. Good morning. I assume it is. I'd like to say this. Uh, You started out by saying uh, we were kidnapped. And I like the word stolen because stolen is direct and has a positive uh, meaning in the sense that you know exactly what was done and there's no hope. When you steal something, your intention is to keep it at all costs. When you kidnap a person, you consider that person as being a object to be bartered for or uh, bargained for, shall I say. So uh, being stolen from Africa to me is more appropriate. Are well, I'll, I'll keep that in I'll keep that in consideration. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Yes, just briefly this. One should look at history, uh, Dr. Chris Wessling, Dr. Claude Anderson, Dr. James Small, Dr. Of course, Ben, Dr. Clark, because everything that they have basically taught us is still quite apropos to the situation in which we are in today. So it's wonderful for the youth to come up, but the youth must be given the knowledge that has lived for centuries. Even Dr. Uh, Du Bois, he left this country. 
So we should start examining, and even South Africa, the state that it is in after Mandela basically was in prison for 27 years, and yep. the what? black man still wants his own piece of ground. Okay, thank you so much. And I will take all of that into consideration. And yes, we have to make sure our young people know their history and that this is an ongoing education. It doesn't just stop when we're young, it continues all of our lives. And so um, our next caller is on WBAI Law of the Land listener. Good morning. Yes, good morning, Ms. Brown Marshall. Um, yes, I'm JB from Brooklyn. Hello. And, uh, just, I just want to um, give some input to the lady that called before and looking for a high school for her daughter. I, I, I really, I, I would certainly um, advise her to listen to um, education at the crossroads Thursday at 8 p.m. Um, I'll just give my input here. Um, I attended Stuyvesant High School about 40 years ago, which sh- makes me shudder just thinking about that. But um, I maintained, I mean, I, I don't, I can't, you can't get any confirmation of this, but I maintained about a B average. I had, um, you know, I had a number of extracurriculars and so forth. And when I went to um, see a counselor when I was um, approaching graduation, I was actually advised to consider um, a community college which, you know, basically the gym teacher was telling me that I should consider a community college. So, yeah, so just to, to your point that, um, you know, they, they, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a, a level, you know, it's not somebody on par that's going to give you, your you know, consideration and will, um, you know, give, um, give you those recommendations. So I, I certainly agree that whatever she could do to to really make sure that she's um she's getting uh, you know appropriate counseling um is definitely on par so well and i thank you for that um she has said that her daughter is in college now she likes the college where she is but no one wants to have their opportunities um muted or undermined based on another person's viewpoint of how much potential someone has. And this is something that has happened with people of African descent and other people of color for generation after generation. It happened to me. It is idea of that even though I was in my high school, I was a class officer. I was very active. I was um, known as in the debate club and, you know, had been an award-winning speaker and had lettered in track. And yet I was not given any essential information about what I should do, where I should go. I was not seen as this person who was worth the investment. And that's what we're talking about, the investment to be able to um, be a, not just a, a wonderful part of society, but a fulfilled human being who has talent and potential that needs to be realized. And that's why being young, gifted in black, being young, gifted in a person of color, being gifted and knowing that there is a society that wants and needs that gift. That's what's missing 
that we are still knocking at the door of opportunity, doing every tap dance, ballerina, puree, and everything else possible, a pirouette, and everything else possible in order for us to be seen as viable people for this society. We have one more caller coming up as we get to our end. And um, you are a listener on WBAI Law of the Land. And what do you have for us today? You're here. Good morning. Hello, is that me? Yes, that is. You're on. Okay, great. Um, regarding the uh, black student uh, by the Asian uh, school officials giving bad recommendations, for that black student to get to college. I understand the Tenement Square uprising by Chinese students. They had a few demands, those students at Tenement Square. And one of the demands was that no black students should be there. Can you speak to that, if you know? Well, I don't know about that demand in Tenement Square. I would like, if you could, please send me that information to study. And you can send it to G.B. Marshall, that's Marshall with two L's, at WBAI.org. G.B. Marshall at WBAI.org. And actually, my listeners, if there is an issue of concern you want me to investigate or address or research in order for an upcoming show, you can also send that to the email, G.B. Marshall with two L's at WBAI.org. As we head into the end of our program, um, if you want to read more about race and education, you can read my book, Race, Law, and American Society, 1607 to Present, Race, Law, and American Society. And this book, actually, I, I really, really recommend it. Um, I'm going to update it within the next few years. But for right now, that history from 1607 um, into the 2000s, I think is vital. And the chapter on education and race is the first chapter in the book. And it takes us from the 1600s. And you will see that the first lawsuit to desegregate a public school was in 1850, 1850. And that was a Boston lawsuit. And so that lawsuit was brought by a black male attorney for a black male father to get his um, black female child into Boston public schools in the 1850s. We go back even to 1787, where Prince Hall, yes, the Prince Hall, Mason Prince Hall, sent a petition, 1787, sent a petition to Boston saying that these black free people who were paying taxes into the system had a right to have their children educated by the public schools, their taxes supported. That was in 1787. I want you to understand how long this battle for education to be able to access the systems we helped build, how long this battle has been going on. And we're going to have another phase of the battle next week on Monday. I plan on being at the Supreme Court to listen to the oral arguments. I'll come back and report it to you as I see it, as I analyze it, as I examine it, because I'm here as part of the process, I hope, to empower, to inform, to enlighten, 
to help us along our way. And thank you, those of you who missed me over this time, to be very quick about it. I actually received um, a fellowship to attend Harvard. So I am at the Harvard Kennedy School in Cambridge, up here outside of Boston. I'm a visiting professor teaching race and racism at the Harvard Kennedy School. And I'm also a fellow, a resident fellow um, at the Harvard Kennedy School. One of the rare things that has happened in the Harvard Kennedy School is to have a visiting professor and a resident fellow at the same time. I am that person. That's where I've been. And I appreciate the fact that you missed me. And I um, so I'm so glad that I was able to have this opportunity and still try to balance out, still carrying on with Law of the Land. And of course, I thank Linda Carter for filling in. And she might be doing that a few more times. My fellowship is not over yet, but I appreciate you. And of course, appreciate um, this platform called WBAI that we've been blessed to have. And with that, Michael G., thank you so much for being my engineer and for all of you, my great listeners, I say, I'll see you on the radio.